0: Well, good morning, Crosspoint. Are you ready to study your Bibles? Great. Turn with me over to 1 Peter 1. As you get there, I kind of want to frame up our time. This morning is is unique on a lot of different levels. Together, we gather under a new name as a church. We gathered as a, at, a, at a new time. My, my family and I are new but familiar to you. And we start a brand new year with hope, knowing what we came from in 2020. And 2020 was... A difficult year. Maybe some of you had worse years, I'm sure, but the general vibe or feeling about last year is that it was awful. But what struck me the most about 2020 actually came before 2020. What we saw almost on the national level last year was the separation and Canceling of Christians by Christians, fueled by pol- politics and social issues and theological secondary and tertiary beliefs. And, and what had begun to brew, brew years and years ago felt like, and, and I recognize the weight of my statements here, but stay with me. What began to brew in Christian circles came to what felt like a boiling point last year. And, and the fruit of that became this sort of unguardedness. This, 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 uh, this feeling, this way of behaving that is to watch out for anything, any little thing in the church or believer or, or preacher that sounded anything controversial. Well, this morning, as the first day, as your pastor, I bring you the most controversial topic I can bring you. I bring you something so audacious, so rebellious, so loud. I'm, I'm here to call you to something so disrespectful to the current cultural moment. I would not be surprised if you left this church today, and that's joy. That's right. Joy, happiness. In a cultural moment where divisiveness reigns supreme, where our focus is on what divides us, what makes us different. I find it remarkable how many times God's word calls his people to be a peaceable, happy people that the mark that would truly define his people from the rest of the world is not theological regurgitation or a radical political leaning and ideals, not geography, not wealth, or, or a neatly tied up life with a house a kids, fence, and a dog. No, none of this would mark the believer. But what actually separates the child of God from the enemy of God is joy true joy given to and continually supplied by God oh the audacity of it but family we have so much reason to be a joyful people so much reason to celebrate to love to live in such a way that those in the faith would those not in the faith would look at us full of joy and delight in God and say how how can I have that? Can you imagine? Close your eyes and think just for, just for a second. What if, what if God's people were not marked by contention, but by a life delighting in the one who makes them happy? By living in happy fellowship with one another. By joyful cheer for neighbor and family. Imagine the audacity of it. Family, this morning's text shows us that we have joy today, tomorrow, and forever. And that the cause of our joy, the root of it, is sure enough to sustain us no matter what life may throw our way. So let's read, pray, and see what the Lord has for us this morning. 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You have been grieved by various trials so that the test, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? God, you are so good to us. You speak to us through your word. Let it encourage us. Let it correct us. Let it breathe life into our souls. God, let us be more filled with love. For you and for our neighbors, let us be so marked by the joy we see in this text. God, we love you. In Christ Jesus name. Amen. There are two pillars we have to set up, our, uh, in up set up in our time, excuse me, this morning that will kind of shape uh, our next few weeks. I want to commit to the building of them now so that as we study together for the next few weeks, we have a foundation to stack on top of. We have a definition we need to break down and a truth we need to exercise. I've been a dog person my whole life. My earliest memories uh, contain dogs in my home and in family members' homes and the great fun that comes with them. But when Nani and I were pregnant with our second child, we moved into an apartment that didn't allow pets. Now, uh, so, so we haven't had one in like five years. And so uh, don't get me wrong. I nagged my wife to death uh, to get one. <laughs> and this year we finally got one. Ever since she was uh, eight or nine weeks, she's been a very social and happy puppy. Today, she's seven months, 30 pounds, and still is the happiest being in our home. There are times when, you know, she's ignored with just general busyness, but she can't ever really be ignored. She is always joyful, always happy. Even in discipline, she can turn the dial from submission to joy quickly. It's fitting that her name would be Piper after the pastor and author John Piper, because so much of Piper's ministry is dedicated to discipling believers into joy in the Lord. So we're going to use Pastor John Piper's definition of joy with a little addition of mine for our basis. He defines joy in the Lord as a good feeling. In the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty and I would add glory of Christ in the word and in the world. I love the clarity of this definition. So I suggest you, you know, write it down as the foundation for our study. So let's break it down. A good feeling. This is not an idea or conviction. It is an emotion. It's a good feeling in the soul. It's not in the body as it is in Little Pipers at home. For the Christian, it is an emotion that resides in the soul. What happens when joy is found in the soul is that the body experiences the aftershock. A good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit. We cannot create. Material things cannot create this kind of permanent Happiness, this joy, this different joy is provided by God himself. It's a grace to us. So a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. The source and the object are God. God provides the joy that makes us look to the beauty and glory of his son. A good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty and glory of Christ in the word and in the world. It's not just in the word that we see the beauty and glory of Christ. We see him in his gifts and in people. We see him in his gifts of nature. We see him in his gifts of food. Praise God. And in all the good things that our father in heaven gives to us, every gift of Christ to us is intended to be a communication of something of himself. So we see Christ not only taste Christ, not only in his word, but also in his World, family could I lay before you this morning the encouragement that your joy has not been robbed could I lay before you that the weariness weariness you feel is a reality of this world yes but it cannot shake it cannot damage it cannot harm the joy you have in the Lord you were made to enjoy God forever that is your chief end which is impossible For us to accomplish. Oh, only God would give his children tasks they cannot fulfill on their own merit. Because he wants his children to run back to him and say, daddy, I need help. I tell my children, tie your shoes knowing they can't do it. But what a warmth to my soul when I hear them say, daddy, can you help me? Because every day I wake up, I say, father, I need you. I need you to remind me of my joy. Remind me what I have in you. One may, one way, reminding takes place in our home, and I would recommend you you try this practice in your own home. We're actually going to do this right now as a church. It's, it's through catechism. Catechisms have a, a rich place. And church history is a tool for discipleship and learning God's word. See, since their appearance in the 17th century, early church fathers across the globe used and wrote catechisms. They are a, a series of, of questions and answers to teach the truths of God to the mind. They are usually committed to memorization. For example, if you ask any one of my boys, what is our only hope in life and death? If they're not too shy, they'll tell you that we are not our own, but belong to God. That we are not our own, but belong to God. Such a deep, such a deep, rich truth. We do this because if there was any doubt, and it will come, my children's faith. If there was any doubt in their faith, if there was ever A moment they would experience that would shake them. They have an anchor, a lifeline, a rope tethered to the rock of ages, tethered to the rock on which the church is built. They have a true north so that they may find home when they find themselves inevitably lost in the wilderness. In fact, an article just came out this week on the Gospel Coalition that said catechesis is not an option you can take or leave. Someone will catechize your children. Don't outsource it. One of the most used catechisms in the faith is the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And its first question, I want to challenge us all to commit to memory because it is also the second pillar on which we begin this study on joy together. The question is, what is the chief end of man? Ah, some of you know it. To know God and enjoy him forever. To know him and enjoy him forever. And this is what Pastor Peter is teaching us here in this text. That we have many callings in this life. But none more greater is our calling to know God and enjoy him. Not only today, but tomorrow and the next day and the next. And he does this Pay careful attention. He does this by explaining the experience of the Christian. He is laying out here what every believer is experiencing. He says, you never see him, but you believe him. You never touched him, but you love him and rejoice in him. Why would Peter do this? Why reiterate that they are loving Christ, believing Christ, though they haven't seen him. Could it be, family, that Peter's intention here is to remind his readers of what true faith in Christ really is? That there is no mystifying ingredient, no magic words, no ritual or chant. That it is simply God's love for us and our love, our belief, and our joy in him as a response. This picture of true Christianity stripped down to his parts so that there were ever to drift from the simplicity There is a fixed standard they can wake up and return to. This is where our joy begins. At the moment of our salvation, true joy takes root in our heart. Family, if you've placed your faith, your trust in King Jesus, who reigns now. You have joy deep down in you. And what you have read right now, was God's word reminding you of that, reminding you that different from your earthly relationships, different than your relationship to created things and nature is a relationship with him that he started. He sustains and he brings to completion. And as a result, as a consequence of God snatching you for his glory, rescuing you from your deadness, A result, a effect is a heart made glad in him. Oh, church, I wish you were glad this morning. I wish you had a shot of thanksgiving in you this morning. That's his strategy. That's his intention to save a people unto himself so that they may have joy. That's the father's plan. His plan was to give his people at the moment of their salvation, a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes them to see the beauty and glory of Christ in the word and in the world. Oh, but pastor, this is hard. You don't know what I've been through. No, family, I don't. I don't. I want to I want to legitimize the weight of your circumstances. I want you to know that I understand that I, that I feel the burden you hold, even though I've never probably hold it, held it myself. Though I may not specifically know what you've gone through. I know what I've been through. And I know the feeling of an aggressive attempt of the robbery of my joy. But nothing shows you the value of your possession like the enemy's attempt to take that which is most important to you. Nothing shows you the weight of how important something is until it is either taken away or attempted to be taken away. And praise God that that which we have can never be taken away though it is tried. How often my wife finds herself looking for her phone, panicking that she may left it, that she may have left it at work or at the store or at someone's house. All of these have happened. The fear that sets in, the anxiety that creeps up in her. But then she remembers it was in her purse the entire time. May this small, insignificant illustration remind you that which God has given you cannot be taken away. It cannot be left somewhere. It cannot be lost. It cannot be robbed. But oh, if you would just remember that you had it on you the entire time. The fire cannot steal. You hear me? The fire cannot steal. The poet William Blake wrote, joy and woe are woven fine. Man, other than God's word and the words of my wife and children, I don't know that I've ever heard anything more true than that. It's an interesting idea To think that God's people, his children, his elect, you and I would experience such trials, such difficulties in our lives. And God, through Peter, speaks to us here words of comfort. Peter is calling us to remember even just a few verses before the outcome of our salvation Of our hope and future glory. That one day. There will be no trial. No suffering. No pain. That one day there will be no depression. No anxiety. No fear. Oh that one day our greatest concern. Will be how much louder can I sing to God today. That is our hope. But pay careful attention family. To the genius of Peter's writing. Rejoicing is not replaced by trial. Rejoicing is not set aside for trial. Rather, rejoicing is coupled with trial. Rejoicing is coupled with trial. In ancient Rome, there was a method by which grain was threshed. One man stirred up the sheaves and another man sort of, sort of he, he rides on this, um, he rides over the sheaves in this like cart or this wagon. And and on this cart or wagon, there's these rollers, right, instead of wheels. And on the rollers are these sharp bits of stone and bits of iron. What they would do is they would grind over the sheaves, and the stones and the iron would separate the husks from the grain. That wagon or cart was called a tribulum. This simple piece of farm machinery is where we get our word Tribulation, family. Do you ever feel? Have you ever felt as if you were under the inescapable weight and force of the tribulum? Peter reminds us that no farmer ever operated his tribulum for the purpose of tearing up his sheaves. The intentions are more elevated than that. The farmer only wanted the precious grain, and so it is with God. Peter is teaching us that the purpose of it all is God at work. The purpose of all of this is God testing the genuineness of our faith because our faith has far more worth than grain or gold. No, it holds eternal value. This is news to stir up great joy. News to stir up great confidence. Because it is all for something. It is all for something. And notice the instruction of our response to trials. In this you rejoice. In this we rejoice in the face of, in the midst of the fire. There are some parts of the sea. Spurgeon has this beautiful analogy. so I'm, He speaks weird, so I'm going to give it to you in, in my English. But he says, there's some parts of the sea where there is a strong current upon the surface going one way, but that down in the depths, there is a strong current running the other way. The two seas do not meet and interfere with one another but one stream of water on the surface is running in one direction and another below in the opposite direction now the christian is like that on the surface there is a stream of heaviness rolling with dark ways but down in the depths there is a strong undercurrent of great rejoicing that is flowing down there. Joy never robbed. Joy never stolen. Joy today, tomorrow, forever. And I'll close with this. Peter tells us that the sufferings of this life only bring to our awareness the separation we feel in the presence of Jesus, from the presence of Jesus, which is why he writes verse eight. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. Joy that is filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Inexpressible joy. Inexpressible joy. When Peter closed his thoughts on heaven in verse 5, he said in verse 6, In this you rejoice. But here, when he finishes his thoughts on suffering, he says we rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. So, if we take Peter's meaning here, we have a lot to say about heaven. When we think on heaven, there's words, there's outward, expressible joy. But while we endure various trials, know that the joy that it produces in us is inexpressible joy. If you haven't placed your faith in Christ as your Lord, if you do not know where you are in your relationship with him, friend, the joy you have now can so easily be taken from you. There is no security in it. In fact, it's a stretch to say that what you have is joy at all. Only God can give you real joy because he supplies it and he is the object of it. No matter what we go through now in this life, we have joy today, tomorrow and forever. And I invite you God is inviting you to experience that joy. Joy that is expressible and inexpressible. Amen.